Well, this morning as we turn to the Word of God, we're going to wrap up the parables of our Lord from Matthew chapter 13. And throughout this entire chapter, all of Matthew 13 thus far, Jesus has been teaching in parables both the crowds, large crowds, as well as his own disciples. And he is, as I mentioned, doing so through this very unique teaching method of using parable. What is a parable? As we've been saying all along, a parable is a story or a real-life situation that is used to illustrate a deeper truth or a spiritual reality. And Jesus tells no less than seven parables in this chapter. And while he is teaching on quite a few subjects, the dominant teaching and the dominant theme here that we keep on seeing over and over again in these parables is the kingdom of heaven. And as we talked about a couple of weeks ago, we tried to define in more specific terms what is the kingdom as we know from Scripture. And we saw really three strains of what is the kingdom. And the first one really being the universal kingdom of God. So all that God has made, all that He owns, all that belongs to Him, which is everything, is His universal kingdom. And then we noted that within that, there's also really a, a second strain of understanding the kingdom, which is the spiritual or redemptive kingdom of God, which is His rule and realm of salvation. It's more specific to salvation. And so anytime a person becomes a Christian, when they become saved and transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the, tra- into the kingdom of His beloved Son, as the Bible says, they are moved from one kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light, the kingdom of salvation, and that is God's spiritual kingdom. But there's a third component to this as well, and that is the, the future kingdom, the, the, the future reign of Christ here on earth. And we talked about how that is a distinct reality that's coming for the future. It, it certainly includes the universal kingdom, it includes the spiritual kingdom, but there is a very specific program that God has deemed to take place in the future at Christ's earthly reign. But today we're going to see in the parable of the dragnet, the parable of the dragnet, This is going to refer to the judgment that comes at the future return and reign of Christ Jesus. But before we get too far ahead of ourselves, I want to read this text together. So we're in Matthew chapter 13, continuing along, starting in verse 47. Matthew 13, 47. The Lord says this, Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad fish they threw away. So it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Have you understood all these things? They said to him, yes. And Jesus said to them, therefore, every scribe, who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things old and new. Now, if you were to break up this text into three parts, you would see very clearly that verses 47 and 48, that is the parable. Now, again, Jesus oftentimes will speak in analogies. He uses a lot of symbolism and metaphor. He will use teaching techniques to get complex truth into the minds and hearts of his listeners. And so the parable is verses 47 and 48. But then also here in verses 49 and 50, he explains the parable. 
He doesn't do that all the time. He doesn't always explain the parable, but sometimes he does, and here he does. And then lastly, in verses 51 and 52, Jesus kind of gives a final exhortation. And some have even regarded this is either a parable or a simple analogy. And so that's why the numbering is kind of weird. There's at least seven parables in chapter 13, but verse 52 could be an eighth parable Again, whether it's one or the other, it's okay. We're going to move ahead. If it is, in fact, a parable, we would call that parable the parable of the householder. But first, I want to look at the parable of the dragnet. Again, verses 47 and 48. Again, the kingdom of heaven is like a dragnet cast into the sea and gathering fish of every kind. And when it, is, when it, was, when it was filled, they drew it up on the beach and they sat down and gathered the good fish into containers, but the bad they threw away. And so for the sixth time in this chapter, Jesus compares what the kingdom of heaven is like. It's like something. He wants to explain it. Previously, it had been like a lot of things. It had been like a man sowing seed and reaping a harvest. Regarding the nature of the kingdom, he had compared it to a mustard seed or leaven, showing its expansive nature, how it keeps on growing and growing, and it's sort of subtle and unassuming, but it keeps on growing. As far as the value of the kingdom, he's compared it to treasure or a costly pearl. And so there is great value of the kingdom of heaven. But now he's comparing the kingdom to a dragnet. Out of all the parables of the day, this would have been the one, I believe, that would have resonated the most with the disciples. And why is that? Well, because more than half of them, at least, were fishermen. And so when Jesus uses an analogy that they can all grasp a hold of, Their ears perk up when they say, I've used a dragnet before. What does this have to do with the kingdom? And so they would have heard this and understood. But they would have been familiar with all kinds of different ways of catching fish. One of the ways to fish in the Sea of Galilee would have been to throw over a net on the side of the boat. So you're sitting there as a fisherman and you have your own personal net. You toss it over and it kind of goes down, collects the fish, and you haul it up yourself and you get a bunch of fish that way. That's kind of the more individualized method of fish catching. But there was also a a different kind of fishing. Really, it it was a more industrial way to fish, if you can imagine industrial ways to fish in the first century. But what they would do is they would take a a larger net, a a drag net. And this drag net was very large, and it could have been tied between two boats, actually. And they would have gone out with this net in tow. And some have even speculated that they, they anchored these nets even to shore, So they would tie one end to the shore and they would row out a little ways and they would have sort of this uh, this sweeping motion where the boat would go ahead and scoop as the net was tied to shore and they would catch a lot of fish that way. So this net was so large, in fact, one scholar I read this week said that the net itself could span up to a half a mile in area. Large, large net. And once the drag net is set up, of course and it's cast into the sea, it would have begun to fill with all kinds of fish. So you don't just see a school of fish next to your boat, throw down a net, and catch a little. You're you're spanning the entire bay with this massive net. And Jesus notes that in this net, when it's cast into the sea, they're catching fish of every kind. Every kind. The nature of the drag net was that it was rather indiscriminate. You didn't know what you were going to catch. And whatever you caught and collected, it was going to be brought into the boat. So you're going to catch big fish, small fish, good, bad, living, some dead, valuable, worthless. You might even catch a sandal or two. You're going to catch all kinds of things in this massive dragnet. It was all caught together. And then verse 48, 
It says when it was filled up, the fishermen would draw it up onto the beach. They would bring it forward and they would set it on the beach. And once they're on the beach, they begin this arduous task of sorting through every single item that is in this massive net. And one by one, the text says, they would gather the good fish into containers, which are most likely baskets, and they would be transported to, to be sold at the market. Some, they would keep some for themselves as their, uh, as their reward for fishing, but they would bring most of it to the market down the street and they would sell them. But then the question is, what about the bad fish? What about all the stuff that you caught in your net that you don't want? Well, some of the fish were useless to eat and some were totally worthless to you. You couldn't sell anything. And so after sorting through all of your items, you would throw away all the bad fish. You didn't cast them back into the water. You would get rid of them. You didn't want them. So Jesus says that in that scenario, this is what, is, what the kingdom of heaven is like. He's illustrating a, a parallel here. There's a spiritual application here. The kingdom of heaven is like this dragnet. Well, how so? How is the kingdom of heaven like this dragnet? Well, again, Jesus actually gives us an explanation in verses 49 and 50. But before we get to that, I want to make a couple of notes about what we actually see right here before we even get to that. It becomes very clear when you begin to read all these parables that the fish, the fish represent different types of people. In fact, the scholars have noted the phrase that fish of every kind could have been a reference to, at least in Jesus' mind, of the people of every tongue, tribe, and nation. You get all kinds of people that come in to this net. But once you gather them up to the, to the, the beach here, all these kinds of people, you're going to get all kinds, good and bad, uh, different. You're going to get every, every kind of person in this net. And at this point, the analogy begins to progress. Because remember, Jesus told the disciples in Luke 5.10, he promised them, even though they were fishing for fish, he says, once you're done doing that and you follow me, he says, I'm going to teach you to become a fisher of men. So even Jesus earlier on had told them that this fishing analogy, this is people. And I'm going to teach you how to fish for people and bring them into the kingdom of heaven. So this massive catch represents the worldwide evangelistic efforts of man fishing. They're catching people in this large net. And then what happens at the end? Jesus explains, verses 49 and 50. He says, so it will be at the end of the age, the angels will come forth and take out the wicked from among the righteous and will throw them into the furnace of fire. In that place, there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Now, we see a few factors here to consider. Again, there is the identity of the fish. Remember, this, this parable only illustrates a greater reality. There's a greater reality here. And the parable, this is dragnets catching all kinds of fish, good fish, bad fish. But Jesus identifies that the good fish that he's keeping out are the righteous, he says. And the ones who are the bad fish, he says, those are the wicked. We don't like to speak in these kinds of terms today. As soon as you say, that's wicked or that's evil, people jump all over. You're not allowed to say that anymore. The Bible does. Jesus does. He delineates very clearly what is righteous and what is wicked. And Jesus himself even says, who is righteous and who is wicked? Very distinct terms. And he says at the end of the age, the angels are going to come forth and they're going to sit down on the, the beach of heaven, if you will, and they're going to sort through the entire catch. They're going to sort through all of it. They're going to sift through all the fish in the net. 
and they're going to take out, take out the wicked from among the righteous, and they're going to throw them not just under the beach, not back in the water. He says they're going to throw these into the furnace of fire. What is he speaking about? What is he talking about? Well, he's speaking about final judgment at the end of the age. We talked about this last week. There is coming a final judgment. And it's interesting to note that Jesus says that it's the angels here that are responsible for sifting through the righteous and the wicked. We see a similar reference back in verse 41 in the parable of the the weed and the tares. Remember that one? Where Jesus says that the Son of Man sends forth the angels to remove stumbling blocks. So all those who are causing others to sin, it is the angels he sends as his servants to go and remove all of those things. And so the angels act as uh, servants of the Lord. Now to be clear, the angels are merely servants doing his will. The ultimate judge is not the angels. The ultimate judge is not Peter standing at the gate. The ultimate judge is the Son of God himself. In fact, turn over to John chapter 5 with me. John chapter 5. Jesus speaks of this reality. The crowds in John 5 are about to turn against Jesus. He has healed this man at the pool of Bethesda, or Bethesda, excuse me, And now he begins to talk about how he's allowed, he's permitted to do things on the Sabbath because he has authority. And then he claims actual equality with God the Father. So Jesus the Son claims equality with God the Father. And once he does this, the crowd begins to mutiny against him and they try to, uh, they want to rise up and kill him. But there's something here. Only Jesus, only God has the power to do. And again, Jesus claims all authority, all power over, uh, over sickness, over death, over judgment. He, he claims authority over everything along with the Father. And so we pick it up in John chapter 5, verse 19. And this is again in the face of a crowd that's going to come against him. Therefore, Jesus answered and was saying to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, the Son can do nothing of himself, unless it is something he sees the Father doing. For whatever the Father does, these things the Son does also in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these, so that you will marvel. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes." For not even the Father judges anyone. But listen to this, beloved. Verse 22, but he has given all judgment to the Son. This is not baby Jesus meek and mild. This is Jesus Christ as judge over all things. Verse 23, so that, why does Jesus judge? So that all will honor the Son even as they honor the Father. He who does not honor the Son does not honor the Father who sent him. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes him who sent me has eternal life and does not come into judgment, but has passed out of death into life. Pause for a second right there. That's the promise of the gospel. You believe on Christ, you don't have death. You don't have judgment. Tom read Romans 8 this morning. I love that passage. It begins in Romans 8.1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. 
That's a remarkable promise that we hold on to. Am I going to go to heaven? Am I going to go to hell? I don't really know. I love Jesus, but I'm not sure. You can be sure Romans 8, 1 is true. There's no condemnation for those who are in Christ. That's what Jesus is saying right here. You believe in me. You trust in me. You have eternal life. You will not come into judgment. You'll pass out of death into life because of me, Jesus Christ. Verse 25, truly, truly, I say to you, an hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. For just as the Father has life in himself, even so he gave to the Son also to have life in himself. And he gave him authority to execute judgment because he is the Son of Man. Verse 28, do not marvel at this, for an hour is coming in which all who are in the tombs will hear his voice and will come forth, those who did good deeds to the resurrection of life and who committed evil deeds to the resurrection of judgment. I can do nothing on my own initiative, Jesus says, as I hear, I judge, and my judgment is just because I do not seek my own will, but the will of him who sent me powerful passage not a passage that we hear about in many churches today but we ought to because we need to see Jesus as he really is gracious savior loving friend our advocate with the father but also righteous and just and so the son here has authority over all creation he has authority over all life he has authority over death Jesus Christ has all authority. In fact, Matthew 28, 18 says the same thing. Jesus says before he goes, all authority has been given to me in heaven and on earth. It all belongs to Jesus. Everything. And so even though the parables seem to be painting the picture that it's the angels coming in to, to judge and to cast judgment, it's actually the Son of God. The angels only work for him. It's Jesus Christ. And so the parable is illustrating this kingdom reality. And it's though God has cast a dragnet over the entire earth. Again, not a small one. He's cast a massive net over all the earth for all time. Since the beginning of creation, since Adam and Eve, until the very last person who's going to become a Christian at the end of the age, this net goes over all people, all time, all creation. And once every single fish has been caught and the net is full, he will then haul in this net and he will judge between the wicked and the righteous. When does this take place? Again, he says it after the events of worldwide tribulation. Jesus explains in Matthew 24, 30, he says this, And then, at this time, and then the sign of the Son of Man will appear in the sky. And then all the tribes of the earth will mourn and they will see the Son of Man coming in the clouds of the sky with power and great glory. And then what does it say? He will send forth his angels with a great trumpet and they will gather his elect from the four winds. It's metaphorical for all over the place. The four winds from one end of the sky to the other. This is the same reality. Same thing Jesus is talking about in Matthew 24. Again, he's describing final judgment. He's sifting between the righteous and the wicked. Now, this is not arbitrary. It's not arbitrary at all. It's not as though, well, some just happen to be righteous and some just happen to be wicked. It's not like that at all. The Bible teaches that the righteous, according to God's economy, the righteous are God's elect. 
Those who he has chosen to save. And here's how this works. It's by God's grace that they hear the gospel. And by his grace, they repent and turn from their sins and trust in him. And it's by his grace that they have any faith at all. And so salvation is all of the grace of God. It's not something that we have intrinsically. It's not just because you're a nice person. It's all of God's grace. And once they have believed, the, God, the Lord justifies them. He declares them to be righteous, even though they're not. We are not, brothers and sisters, we are not inherently righteous people. If you dig down deep enough, you start to see, no, I'm actually pretty sinful. And there's nothing in my life that is redeemable. Nothing in my life that I am inherently righteous to do. God is the one who's righteous. God is the one who's just. God is the one who's kind and gracious. Again, all of salvation is merely a mercy and a kindness of God. And then he says about the wicked, there are those, according to 2 Thessalonians 1.8, who disobey the gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. He goes on to say, these will pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. And so when Christ comes back, yes, he's coming to judge, but he's coming back so that all of us would marvel at him. I don't know when he's coming back and neither do you, by the way, but when he does come back, the common experience of all people Now, for people who do not know the gospel, who do not love Christ, who reject him, who disobey him, for them it will be terror. But for all those who love Christ, when he comes back, we are going to marvel, marvel at his presence. And yet, he says, there are those who do not obey the gospel. There are those who rebel against God. You ask them, what do you think about Jesus? I couldn't care less. What about your sin? I don't have any sin. Well, yes, the Bible says you do. Well, so what if I do? What do you think about God? Eh, he's fine with me. I'm fine with him. That's what people say. I hear it all the time. I'm sure you do too. People who reject the grace of God. They don't believe that they need a Savior. I'm not that bad. I'm actually pretty good. But the Bible says that not one of us is righteous. Not even one. No one understands. Nobody seeks after God. All of us at our core are depraved. We're without righteousness, which is why we need Jesus. That's the whole point of the gospel. The point of the gospel is that I can't save myself. I need someone to save me who's perfect and righteous. That's Christ. So Jesus says, they, the the wicked, will be thrown into the furnace of fire. And he keeps on going with the metaphor. In that place, there'll be weeping and gnashing of teeth. He says the exact same thing back in chapter 13, verse 42. What's the lesson here? What's the point? There's only two ways to go. Only two ways to go. The Bible says, Matthew chapter 7, it's either the narrow way, which leads to life, or the broad way, which only leads to destruction. There's the way of repentance and faith and trusting in Jesus Christ, or there's the way of sin and rebellion and condemnation. The way of the righteous is in Christ, or the way of the wicked is in the way of self and of sin. And let me tell you, the Bible is very clear that judgment is coming. Now, we don't know what day We don't know the hour. If I knew the hour, I would tell you, set your clock for this hour. 
But I don't know and neither do you. And so there is something called constant expectancy. What does that mean? It means that you live your life in preparation for the coming of Christ. Now we've been living and at a certain point you, th- you say, well, gee, gee whiz, you know, I don't even know if he's going to come. It's been 2,000 years. But a day to the Lord is like 1,000 years. 1,000 years is like one day. What does it matter to God? He's timeless outside of all of that. He's eternal. And so for him, 2,000 years is a drop in the bucket. I will come back when I want to come back. But our job is to wait for him expectantly and to examine our life now. Because even if Christ doesn't come back, For the final return, all of us who are alive at this point, before he comes back, your life is going to end at some point. And when your life does end, you will stand before him and have to give an account. What do you believe? What is your hope of eternal life? Is it yourself? Or is it Jesus Christ and his righteousness? And so the time is coming And we need to understand that it is time for us, even right now, to get off the fence. So many people live on the fence. They straddle both worlds. Well, I want to be a Christian. I like what that offers. But I also like the world a lot, too. I like this idea of having a Savior and having eternal life. But I also really love my sin. And I don't want to make any changes. If you're on the fence, you have to pick a side. And if you don't pick a side, God will pick it for you. God will sift and judge because he's righteous to judge. It's his prerogative to do so. And so why does Jesus give these parables? Why does he speak in such harsh, distinct language to motivate us to respond? Now, some will not respond. And no matter how much I preach at you, you won't respond. And it's because you've stopped up your ears. But if there's anything in you, if God is working in you at all, then you are commanded by the scriptures to respond to him and believe the gospel and turn from your sins, get off the fence and trust in him and live as though you believe in the future of his coming. And if you do so, he regards you as righteous. And you examine yourself and you say, oh Lord, I am not righteous. He knows. He deems you to be righteous because you love his son. And his son is righteous. Praise be to God. But believe on Christ and be saved. That's the point. And essentially, at this point, Jesus is using these parables and he ends all these parables, at least in this chapter, with this warning of divine judgment. It's like he puts an exclamation point at the end of his sentence. Heed the warning. And with that, he turns back to the disciples and he asks them the question. He says, have you understood all of these things? Have you understood these things? And he's talking about everything he's taught so far. And there's a sense in the question, if you were to look at the Greek, really the the Greek words are talking about putting things together. It's assembling things or linking things up. So the sentiment here is, have you put it all together yet? Do you know what I'm talking about? That's the sense of it. And how do they respond? I love this. Yes. They just, yes, we get it. Now, we know that from in the coming chapters, they're not going to get it. They need some more help, and Jesus knows this. But for the moment right now, he says, have you understood? And they say, yes, we, we do understand. We understand, Lord, what you're teaching us. And we're understanding the reality of what you're saying. Again, it's a little bit premature. I'm sure Peter was the first one to say, oh, yes, Lord, I understand. 
And Jesus probably would have just smiled and said, okay, we'll wait. <laughs> but then the Lord adds this sentiment in verse 52. After they have admitted to them to him that they have understood what he said, he adds this to them. And Jesus said to them, verse 52, Therefore, every scribe who has become a disciple of the kingdom of heaven is like a head of a household who brings out of his treasure things new and old. Now, this verse is a little bit challenging, and scholars are divided as to what this means exactly. We have a lot of help, I think. Again, the question is, is this a parable or is this a simple analogy? Uh, I, I think it's more of a parable, but it could simply be an analogy. But I want to look at this together. I think we're going to see and understand what this really means. He comments about the scribes. He says, every scribe who has become a disciple. What is a scribe? Well, in Israel, in Jesus' day, the Jewish religious system was comprised of several different theological parties. Several different, there were political parties, really, but they're political religious parties, okay? There were the Pharisees, which were really the, the religious conservatives of the day. They held to the letter of the law, right to the, to the mark. I mean, they were very, very staunch on not just the scriptures and the law, but also tradition. And so they were very conservative in that way. And then there were the Sadducees, which were more progressive. Now, they denied certain tenets of Revelation. They only had, had confessed the first five books as being authoritative. But they were very progressive in their ideas about religion. And then there were the Zealots, who were the extremists. These are the radicals. And then there were the Essenes, who were basically separatist monks, who went off and hid and just read all day long. And then working in and among these groups were these groups of the scribes. Now, generally, the scribes, they work more closely with the Pharisees, because, again, the Pharisees held to the law pretty rigidly. And so they were working with them, but they were of a different class of Pharisee, if you will. While the Pharisees were more politically minded, the scribes were more focused on the law of Moses. They were, they were scholars. They were students. They were the theologians of the day. So you wanted to get learning on the scriptures, you went to see the scribes. You asked them. And so the Jewish scribes, they would have been well-versed in the biblical scriptures, as well as Jewish traditions. And all those traditions are, are written down and collected in what's known as the Mishnah. And then there's also the Talmud, which is essentially the, the commentary and the application of the Jewish law, which is the scriptures and the Mishnah. So all of the bounds of Jewish orthodoxy, they knew all of it. All of the stuff. They were the most learned men in all of Israel. And whenever the Pharisees, it's interesting to note, anytime the Pharisees wanted to try to catch Jesus in, a, in an error or in a lie or they wanted to trip him up as much as they could, they, they reached the end of their point because Jesus would confound the wisdom of the Pharisees all day long and when they, when they couldn't get anywhere, they'd say, that's it. We're going to put down the ace of spades, if you will. We're going to go get the scribes. And we're going to bring the scribes in here and they're going to tell Jesus what's what. So that's what they would do. They would bring the scribes in to try to trip Jesus up because they knew the Bible better than anybody. They knew all of it. However, once in a while, one of these scribes or Pharisees would come to faith in Jesus and they would begin to follow him. We see this sort of thing with Nicodemus. Nicodemus is a Pharisee and Jesus actually tells him in John chapter 3, aren't you the teacher of the law? He doesn't say a teacher, he says the teacher. You're one of these prominent teachers of Jewish law, and you don't know the basics about salvation? That's the implication. So Nicodemus, we know later on, he becomes a follower of Christ. And, and, and in essence, uh, the Apostle Paul, he was Saul of Tarsus. He was a, a very zealous and devout Pharisee. 
These kinds of people came to Christ and began to follow him. Now, we don't see this happen all the time. It's not a, a prominent occurrence in Scripture, but we know that it does happen. In fact, we read about in Acts chapter 6, verse 7, Luke writes this, that the word of God kept on spreading, and the number of the disciples continued to increase greatly in Jerusalem, and a great many of the priests were becoming obedient to the faith. So even the priests, even the Pharisees, even the scribes, prominent leaders in Jewish culture, when they came to faith, it was a big deal. But the scribes are special. The scribes are special. Why are they special? Because they already had in their mind and in their heart a treasure trove of biblical knowledge, theological acumen, and personal piety. They already had a lot going for them. They weren't like the Gentiles who didn't know anything. When you converted a Gentile to the faith, they didn't even know how to act. You, you tell the Gentile, okay, one wife, that's it. They, they didn't know. You, you couldn't have multiple wives. Uh, stealing is wrong. Oh, okay. They didn't know basic morality. They didn't know the God of the Scriptures. They didn't even know that there was a coming Messiah. They knew nothing. And so you had to start from the ground up. It's like New Englanders. Start from the ground up, because we don't know much up here, and that's a, that's a shame on us. We used to be the, the focal point of worldwide missions out of New England. We don't know anymore. So this kind of a thing is not a given up here. I digress. But they weren't like the Gentiles. These people, these scribes, they knew the basics. They knew more than the basics. And so when a scribe became a disciple of the kingdom of heaven, and they had the blessing then and the responsibility of bringing out from their treasure old things and new. And Jesus likes this kind of scribe to a, a householder. In the Greek, it's oikodespotes. It's the master of the household. And this, this is a, a household manager. Now, in this day, the, the household that wasn't just necessarily your, your wife and your kids. This could be a lot larger of a, of a home. It could be your family, your extended family, your children, your relatives, uh, anybody living with you, a guest that's coming into town. Uh, it was also your servants, your, your staff, if you had a staff. So there could have been a lot of people in your household. There could have been 10, 20, 30, 50 people in your household. But everybody in your household, if you were the householder, the manager of the household, it was your responsibility to take care of everybody. Provisions, lodging, everything was your responsibility. And it's interesting because Ephesians 2.19 calls the church the household of God. We're the household of God. And so Jesus is essentially tasking converted scribes, theologians of their day, Scribes with the blessing and the care of ministering to God's household out of the treasure that they had. Out of all their knowledge, all their spiritual resources, now that you guys know the truth, now that you know the gospel, there is a responsibility for you. Old things, the Old Testament scriptures, they're pertaining to the law. They knew the law backwards and forwards. Bring that with you. Bring the law with you. But also new things, new treasure, What's that? The revelation of Christ, the gospel of grace. Bring the law and the gospel. Bring all of that with you, and I want you to care for God's household. So important. He says that this is your responsibility. There's a blessing here. This is why I teach men's theology. I've been doing it for nine years now. Every single week, I always cherish the opportunity to teach anybody theology. You want to know theology? I'm, I want to help you grow. 
all people, I believe, should be learning theology. But there's something unique and there's something important about teaching the deep things of God to serious-minded men who have a desire to care for their own household. Now, whether you study theology with me or Pastor Dan or somebody else, it doesn't really make a difference to me uh, intrinsically. As long as it's sound doctrine, don't go to some wackadoo and get your, your doctrine. Make sure it's sound doctrine. But I think we're missing the point if we think that heads of households are only responsible for providing for their families materially. I think there's more than that. I think every head of a household is charged by God to provide for their families spiritually as well. More than their responsibility, it's also a tremendous blessing and a tremendous joy to be able to minister God's truth to the ones you love. It's an honor. Because how many times do our kids come to us, moms and dads, how many times do your kids come to you and they say, I have a question about the Bible. And you're like, all right, great. And they ask you some zinger and you go, I have no idea. And they look at you like, aren't you supposed to know? Explain to me the Trinity, Dad. All right, sit down. Let's talk. There are deep things that our families need to know, right? Now, granted, there are some mysteries that we will never know. You give them the best answer you possibly can. But let me tell you, there is something blessed. There's something joyous. There's something wonderful about your son or your daughter. And I'm going to pick on men here, but son or daughter, come to Dad and say, Dad, I have a question about the Bible. And they ask their question, you say, well, here, let's turn together, and I want to explain this to you. Taking responsibility to teach your children, and even minister to your wives as well. Now, again, does this go the other way with wives to husbands and wives to children? It absolutely does. But if that's happening, and dad's not part of it, we're missing the boat here. I really believe that. Because, again, Jesus is talking about the responsibility of householders providing treasure for their families. Now, he's talking about the household of God, but isn't there also a spiritual application for us? I believe that there is. But Jesus is calling all kinds of people to himself. Some are learned and erudite and gifted. Many of us are simple and ordinary and hardworking and earnest, but all kinds. And we're not all going to be scribes. In fact, most of us aren't going to be scribes. Not all are mighty. But let me tell you, if you have been called by God and enjoy the riches of salvation, brothers and sisters, rejoice. Rejoice in your salvation. Rejoice that God has called you and equipped you and given you spiritual insight to read the scriptures and understand and desire good teaching and desire to sing and desire to pray and desire to confess your sins. But also heed the warning. 2 Peter 1.10 tells us, Therefore, brethren, be all the more diligent to make sure, make certain about your calling and election, because the Lord is going to return. And when he, whether he comes first or whether you leave this earth to meet him, the question is, do you know him? Do you know him? Do you really know Jesus Christ? When final judgment happens, will you be saved? Is your name written in the Lamb's book of life Or will you be cast away? Examine yourself. That's the point of this parable. It's a serious thing. Examine yourself. And if you do belong to him, heed the responsibility. Are you in the faith? But what is the faith? It is this. That Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came to this earth perfectly. Truly righteous because he is God himself. 
embodied in human flesh. He came to this earth and lived a perfect, sinless, flawless life. And then he gave up that life on the cross and willingly sacrificed himself to die as a penalty, to pay the penalty for sins. And all the sins of all the people who would ever believe in him were nailed to that cross with him. And when he died, the penalties of those sins died with him. And when he rose the third day, he burst forth, bringing life to all those who would believe. And God vindicated his sacrifice by acknowledging the resurrection. And he ascended to heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father right now. And he still intercedes for us. He still hears your prayers. He still hears your repentance. He still sees your faith. And what is the command for all people everywhere? To turn from your sins and trust in Jesus Christ. And if you turn from your sins and believe on Him, the Lord Jesus, He promises that we will have eternal life with Him. And when that dragnet gets pulled in, we will not be cast aside like the wicked. We will be brought into the storehouse, if you will. We'll be brought in as cherished possessions, trophies of God's grace, deemed to be righteous even though inherently we're not. But He regards those who have believed in Him, He deems us as though we were righteous. That's the doctrine of justification by faith. It is by faith that God does any of this. Do you know Him? If, if you don't know Christ, don't leave this morning without talking to me. Matt Howe is one of our elders. Don't leave before talking to us. Because you don't know when your last day is going to be. It could be driving home today. It could be tonight. It could be tomorrow. Who knows when it's going to be. But make sure that you know that Jesus Christ has paid for your sins and that you believe in Him. Nothing more important in the whole world than the Gospel. Heavenly Father, we thank You. We thank You for these parables of our Lord. We thank You that You have used this truth, this very simple, simple truth, to convict us of our sins, to show us our Savior, to see the need for salvation, to see the kingdom of heaven, all these things You have revealed and exposed the truth of to us. And Lord, I pray that You would help us to examine ourselves and not take this for granted. Do I really know Jesus Christ? Do I trust Him with my whole life and not just my life for salvation, but every day of my life? Do I surrender and submit all my cares, all my anxieties, all my worries, all my doubts, all my sins, all my transgressions? Do I surrender that to You because You are the Sovereign Lord? God, I pray that You would help us to do so. Only by the power of the Spirit can we do this but I praise you that you have made a way possible. God the Father, you have sent God the Son. And the Father and the Son, you have sent the Spirit to us, who ministers to us, who convicts us, who gives us comfort and assurance, who works sanctification in us. What a marvelous Trinitarian truth this is, that you are a God worthy to be praised. And so we praise you and we honor you today. All of these things in the name of of the Son, Jesus Christ. Amen.